The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Minister, Sarah Harrison is an excellent civil servant and a bright hope for the future. But she is our most junior undersecretary, and I cannot and will not recommend her promotion to deputy secretary. I think you're a sexist. Oh, <laughs> how could you say that? They're very pro-women. Wonderful people, women. <laughs> and Sarah Harrison is a dear lady. I'm one of her greatest admirers. But if the cause of women is to be advanced, it must be done with care, tact, and discretion. She is our only woman contender for a top job. We mustn't push her too fast. Women find top jobs very difficult, you know. Can you hear yourself? Minister, if women were able to be good permanent secretaries, there would be more of them, wouldn't there? Stands to reason. No, Humphrey. I'm not anti-feminist. I love women. Some of my best friends are women. Um, my wife, indeed. But Sarah Harrison is as yet very inexperienced. And her children are still of school age. They might get mumps. You might get shingles come to that, Humphrey. I might indeed, Minister, if you continue in this vein. What if her children caused her to miss work all the time? Oh, is it likely? Would she have reached the rank of undersecretary if her children kept having mumps? No, she is the best person for the job. Now, Minister, if you're going to promote women just because they're the best person for the job, you will create a lot of resentment throughout the whole of the season. <laughs> Not from the women in it, anyway. Well, that hardly matters, does it? <laughs> Hardly matters, Humphrey. There are so few of them. <laughs> Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 8th, 2014. I'm Robert Vaughn. And I'm Mary Lou Ambrosio. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. to black and white under the bed everything will be right. welcome to the show obviously bob metz isn't here today as he is extremely busy with the provincial election helping to administrate the freedom party's campaign we will begin our hour with some announcements followed by mary lou letting us know where the best place to be in canada is if you're a woman the answer may surprise you everywhere <laughs> before the before we got in, I said, where's that, Belize? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Later in the show, it's all about sex and violence as I review the popular TV shows Vikings and Game of Thrones. Have you seen those two shows, Marilyn? No, I haven't. Oh. I, I don't know if I'm going to recommend them. Maybe I will, but I, <laughs> it depends on your taste. But first off, though, we should bring our listeners up to date on, on a few items. First of all, um, give us a call. If you want to join in on a conversation today at 519-661-3600, you can also send us an email at feedback at justratemedia.org. And uh, if you go to our website, justratemedia.org, you'll find our YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, and we're on iTunes. So if you um, like to listen to a radio show in your car on the commute, as I do, you can download our, all of our shows, and this is, I think, number 349, on iTunes as a podcast. And while you're there, subscribe to uh, our channel on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave a review. If you don't like the show, don't leave a review. <laughs> okay. First off, though, as New York lawyer Gideon J. Tucker said in 1866, no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session. 
Well, good news. <laughs> With the dropping of the writ yesterday, the Ontario legislature is no longer in session. Yay. Yes, that's what I say, too. Yay. That is until a new parliament is formed, and then it's back to the same old tax and spend, control and force, harangue and harass, which is typical of any Ontario government to date. And while Toronto usually holds the balance of the media's attention, some will no doubt be uh, looking more closely at London this time around, as this town will have a real alternative for voters in all of its ridings. Bob Metz and leader Paul McKeever have put together a stellar team of candidates for Freedom Party across the province, but locally to take on incumbent Peggy Sattler of the NDP is London West... um, in London West will be Al Gretzky, a co-host of this show at times. And in um, London North Centre, Salim Mansour, Associate Professor of Political Science from this very university, will take on Health Minister Deb Matthews. That's going to be a, a great fight. And, of course, just announced this morning, Paul McKeever, the leader of the Freedom Party, will run in London Fanshawe, my own riding against incumbent New Democrat Teresa Armstrong. I can't wait to put <laughs> a sign on my lawn. I think I'll choose the orange color. Yeah, that, would, that would be good. <laughs> this is going to be an exciting race as Londoners have some high-profile freedom candidates to, uh, as Salim Mansour described it on the Andy Udman show the other day, break the closed loop in Queen's Park. Because it is a closed loop, isn't it, Mary Lou? It's yes, a tight it is. ship. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all those three parties who are doing the exact same damage as the party before them, whether it's the NDP, Liberal, Progressive, Conservative, it doesn't matter. It seems that there's always a road to serfdom um, from Queen's Park. And that loop has to be broken. And I think that um, Freedom Party is the, the guys who are going to do that, and they should do well in this election. In other news, you may remember if you go back to, um, I think it was just last year, Lars Hedegaard of Dispatch International, a past guest on this show, uh, may be able to breathe a sigh of relief um, as police have arrested a suspect in his attempted assassination. Now, the only problem is that the suspect is in Turkey, and, of course, Turkey does not have an extradition treaty with Denmark, and so it may be some time before we see justice in uh, Lars' case. What does, uh, here we have a, a Copenhagen Post article, and uh, Hedegaard says that he does not have much hope that the suspect will be returned to Denmark. Quote, I'm sorry that he has been arrested and imprisoned in Turkey because he can now hire a bunch of lawyers to avoid extradition, hmm. Hedegaard told uh, the uh, Post. Uh, it could take many years, and I don't think much of the possibility. So that's uh, good news and bad news, I guess. They've got <coughs> the guy. Whether or not he ever enters the Denmark again is uh, questionable because of the, such a porous border yeah. in Europe. People travel freely all over that place without any uh, oversight as to who goes where. Um, and that certainly was no accident, by the way. No accident what? That That's the way it turned out with people traveling porously. Uh, no, by design you're suggesting, yes. eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, and as a matter of fact, I think that this particular uh, suspect uh, was found because he left the country the same day as the assassination attempt on Lars. Really? Yeah, so uh, that may have been part of uh, how they got the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, finally, 
as another housekeeping item, uh, we talked about the, on this show before a group called Muslims Facing Tomorrow, which, by the way, Salim Mansur is a uh, vice president. Vice of? president. Yep. Vice president of yeah, and uh, Rahil Raza is the president. Mm-hmm. And uh, now Rahil and Muslims Facing Tomorrow are going to bring a movie called or documentary called The Honor Diaries here in London on May 29th from 6:30 to 8:30 p.m. at the Wolf Performance Hall at the London Public Library at 251 Dundas Street. Would you care to elaborate, Mary Because you're a little closer to this. Yeah, I'm actually involved with putting it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, now, yeah, The on- Honor Diaries is a documentary which deals with the actual, not imagined, misogyny that still exists in many Muslim-majority countries. Now, what's interesting, yeah, is that uh, many universities have actually closed down screenings of the film, Thanks to pressure from the uh, CARE Canadian, or sorry, Council of American Islamic Relations, who all, incidentally also pressured Brandeis University to rescind their offer of an honorary degree to Ian Hirsi Ali, mm. who's also one of the advisors on the film. They don't like this film, so everybody should come out on uh, Thursday, May 29th, to see what it is that we're talking about here, what they're talking about. Right. Six, is, <laughs> is there a, a, a door a cover charge? Or yes, there is. There's $10 cost to help us defray some of the uh, costs to us. Mm-hmm. But it will be... Um, now, this event is co-sponsored by Freedom Party. Ah. So Paul McKeever will also speak, um, probably mostly on the issue of how political parties hand, are going to handle this issue in future, maybe what their options are legally, because, of course, Paul's a lawyer. Um, we're also... Andrew Lawton of AM980 will be moderating the event. Oh, very and, good. Mm-hmm, and our guest speaker will be Rahil Raza, who I believe is going to be on your show earlier in the day. We're going to hope so. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I hope she can make out. the show, yes, uh, depending on the timing. Um, yeah. uh, what uh, I don't understand, Mary Lou, is that here we have a documentary documenting violence against women. Yeah. Where are the feminists promoting this? Where are the Megan Walkers? Where right. are the um, the people who are standing up for women in this country yeah. saying, shouting from the rooftops, here, go watch the Honor Diaries. Yeah. It's about violence against women in Muslim communities. Right. I think that's the answer right there, Absolutely. is that they have this dichotomy, they have this dilemma. How can we defend the women of Muslim families if we're pro-Muslim, if we want to be a diverse society, it looks yeah. as if we're going to be, well, in their words, racist, even though Islam is not a race, it's an no, ideology. Exactly. You know, uh, what your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, actually, I interviewed Rahil for this, um, uh, the Yodler edition that comes out today, and mm-hmm. that is one of the questions I asked her about what, what, what she says to that, uh, that seeming... Um, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what was her um, response? Oh, you caught me off guard. <laughs> People should get a copy of The Yodeler and find out. That's a good idea. That yeah. is a free publication here in London. Yes, it is. Yeah, We're also online. Eventually, they post the articles and interviews mm-hmm. online a week or so after publication. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's always the hypocrisy that, that, that frustrates me, is that uh, why would the um, Council on American and, uh, Islamic Relations uh, not want to show this. Exactly. What are they hiding? Are they in favor of wife abuse? They they were they worry more about um, it reflecting poorly on Muslims. But that's that's not what we're saying. That's not what the argument is about. We're not suggesting that all Muslims behave this way. Well, we're saying that not. there is still a trace of this very extreme 
and and deadly misogyny within that culture that needs to be exposed. Well, look at the uh, Nigerian kidnapping yes. of those of over yes. 200 little girls mm-hmm. being sold off into slavery. Yeah. Um, yeah. By Boko Haram. I mean, that's a, a an Islamic or Islamist yeah. organization trying to uh, take over Nigeria. And uh, how it's very difficult. Well, of course, you cannot ascribe these things to uh, to Muslims per se. You can certainly ascribe it to uh, Islam. Yes. You know, and Islamism. And uh, not to speak out is uh, doing these girls, doing women in these families, uh, a disjust, uh, an injustice. Absolutely. You know, certainly the more fundamentalist forms of it. Which, what's interesting too, of course, is when you, if you uh, brought up the subject of fundamentalist Christians, they'd be happy to talk about how horrible those people are. Yes, you they know? would, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. Again, another hypocrisy. I mean, yeah. if it's happening in Christian families, for example, some of the, uh, yeah. um, I mean, how, how do I delicately phrase this? Some of the uh, offshoot sex. Yes. Uh, you know. Um, Which is true, by the way, because this uh, female genital mutilation isn't exclusively uh, uh, done by uh uh, in Arabic countries or by mm. Muslims, there is some of that also in in some of these um, other sort of backwards Christian. Uh, they're not heard of as often. Mm-hmm. But the other issue is that the the reason we fight it so much with Islam is because um, they're asking for accommodation in our countries. Right. That's the issue. And it becomes political. It be- yes. Whereas yeah. these other groups, you don't even hear about them. They're they're so obscure. Now, speaking of feminism, you're going to be talking in the next couple of uh, quarter of hours about uh, the topic of women in society and feminism. And we have a couple of clips coming up here. Can you uh, lead us into these clips? Yeah. So coming up, um, you'll hear the voice of Robert Reich, who was President-elect Obama's economic advisor. And this is him speaking in early 2009 at an economic recovery plan meeting about the $787 billion stimulus package they were about to unleash, um, wherein he expressed his concern that this money should not just go to white male construction workers. And then the other voice you'll hear ta- speaking with him in the clip is uh, Charlie Rangel. He's a Democratic representative from New York, and he obviously agrees and is encouraging this, this kind of uh, favoritism with the stimulus money. Right, so let's give a listen to these clips and we'll be uh, right back. Now let me say something about infrastructure. It seems to me that infrastructure spending is a very important and good way of stimulating the economy. The challenge will be to do it quickly, to find projects that can be done that have a high social return that also can be done with the greatest speed possible. I am concerned, as I'm sure many of you are, that these jobs not simply go to high-skilled people who are already professionals or to white male construction workers. I have nothing against white male construction workers. I'm just saying that there are a lot of other people who have needs as well. And therefore, in my remarks, I have suggested to you, and I'm certainly happy to talk about it more, ways in which the money can be, uh, criteria can be set so that the money does go to others, the long-term unemployed, uh, minorities, women, people who are not necessarily construction workers or high-skilled professionals. Uh, uh, First of all, there's no question we should give as much help to the states uh, as we can. We have vehicles to do that. But with so many of our infrastructure uh, problems, 
the state legislature wants their fingerprints on everything that goes through, and my great city of New York lost hundreds of billions of dollars destined for the city because they couldn't get cooperation from our state legislature. So we're going to have to find some way to establish formulas to expedite this where uh, governors are going to be forced to find some formula to find out how can we get the money where the hemorrhages are. And whether Harlem is going to compete with it, Newark is not nearly as important if at the end of the day we know where the joblessness are, where the fears are, and that we can get the federal formulas to target the relief to these communities once they meet that criteria. Remove the, 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 the discretion, identify the need through numbers, and get help there as swiftly as possible. And one thing that you can depend on, you don't have to be worried about what the middle class is going to do. Things are so bad, they have to put food on the tables, get clothes for their kids, uh, get them in school. before it's too late. It's already too late. I've worked for you a long time and I'm paid less than Robin. Holy discontent. Same job, same employer means equal pay for men and women. No time for jokes, bad girl. It's no joke. It's the federal equal pay law. Holy act of Congress. Can we talk about this later? Will that girl save the dynamic duo? Will she get equal pay? Tune in tomorrow or contact the Wage and Hour Division listed in your phone book under the U.S. Department of Labor. Holy hell hath no fury like a woman ripped off, Robert. Was that actually a public yes, service announcement it was, from by 1966? Adam West? Oh, yeah. dear. She was going to let them die if they didn't give her equal pay for equal work. No time for jokes there, Mary Lou. <laughs> Sorry. Scary, but not unbelievable, unfortunately. So, yeah, I want to talk about inequality. Um, this summary of an article entitled The Misandry Bubble, which can be found on a blog called The Futurist, expresses my concerns pretty well. It says, The Western world has quietly become a civilization that undervalues men and overvalues women, where the state forcibly transfers resources from men to women, creating various perverse incentives for otherwise good women to conduct great evil against men and children, and where male nature is vilified, but female nature is celebrated. This is unfair to both genders and is a recipe for a rapid civilizational decline and displacement, the costs of which will ultimately be borne by a subsequent generation of innocent women rather than men as soon as 2020. So what got me thinking about this subject again was this article in the Free Press last week about a report prepared by the very left-leaning Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives on the best and worst places to be a woman in Canada. And as Robert mentioned, I wrote a column for the Yodler about this report, wherein I noted several problems I had with it, so many, in fact, that I, I couldn't even fit everything into that article. 
But the report ranked Canada's 20 largest metropolitan areas based on a comparison of how men and women are faring in five areas. There's economic security, leadership, health, personal security, and education. And the report said they would look at the gaps between outcomes, but not the actual conditions. So there was our first clue that this would perhaps be a bit dishonest because uh, I guess, you know, the devil's in the details, but a lot of times that's where the explanations for purported gaps would be. But no need to discuss reasons for any gaps, which may uh, be perfectly reasonable and not driven by the fact that women sometimes may wish, sometimes, sorry, it's, it's reasonable reasons like the fact that women might want to make decisions and choices about the kind of work they do. It's well, perfectly, of course. Right. Now, when uh, Kathy Shadle and I co-hosted uh, Just Right a couple years ago, mm-hmm. we talked about a protest by some very angry women at the University of Toronto. Um, they were trying to shut down a talk to be given by Warren Farrell. Now, he's the guy who, in the 70s, was very involved in fighting for women's rights. And, in fact, um, he had the distinction of being the only man elected to the board of the National Organization for, for Women three times. But he's also the guy who couldn't understand why, after all the advancements made by women, the wage gap wouldn't go away. So he decided to do extensive research, and the results of that research became his book, Why Men Earn More. And the book documents the 25 differences between men and women's work-life decisions that explain the gap. Um, Now, here's a little blurb I picked up on the Internet about it. Um, By the start of the 21st century, Farrell felt he had re-examined every substantial adult male-female issue except the pay gap, that men as a group tend to earn more money than women as a group. In Why Men Earn More, the startling truth behind the pay gap and what women can do about it, he documents 25 differences in men and women's work-life choices, which he argues account for most or all of the pay gap more accurately than did claims of widespread discrimination against women. Common to each of men's choices was to earn more money, while each of women's choices prioritized having a more balanced life. These 25 differences allowed Farrell to offer women 25 ways to get higher pay, and he accompanied each with their possible trade-offs. The trade-offs include working more hours and for more years, taking technical or more hazardous jobs, relocating overseas or traveling overnight. So these are all ways that they could increase their income should they choose. Some of Farrell's findings in Why Men Earn More include his analysis of Census Bureau data, that never married women without children earn 13% more than their male counterparts. Say that again. Yep. Um, uh, Never married women. Never married women without children earn 13% more. I smell systemic discrimination. Yes, you're right. (laughs) But they don't care about that kind. No, let's uh, let's gloss that over. That's like the hockey stick uh, thing in global warming. Let's ignore the the decline. Absolutely. Um, Now... The uh, the themes that he wove throughout why men earn more are the importance of s- assessing trade-offs and that the road to high pay is a toll road, the pay paradox, that pay is about the power we forfeit to get the power of pay. And since men earn more and women have more balanced lives, he was saying men have more to learn from women than women do from men. So this is a very fair man. Well, you know... Men die a lot earlier than women. I wonder why. Is there a correlation? Do you know what's funny, Robert? I actually um, looked into that. Now that's changing. The gap is is getting smaller. But I wonder if that's because more women are taking on more stress. So once again, 
we really have to think about these things and and consider all factors. But there's certain things they leave out when they're inconvenient. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, this is something uh, I think more and more people are coming to understand now. Uh, and yet, despite the understanding, we still have to suffer through Equal Pay Day, which purportedly marks the extra time the average woman has to work into a new year to earn what a man earned the year before. This year, it was uh, it fell on April 8th. Really? And so uh, we had to suffer the indignity of Obama making a big announcement about how horrible it is that we still have this wage gap. Well, again, let's go back and say that it's not women who have to work till April 8th. It's married women with children. Yeah. <laughs> right? Let's be specific. Let's not ignore well, that ourselves. Well, there you go. It's yeah. important. It's important. That's what I was saying about the devil being in the details. Yeah, read the fine print. Yeah. Um, now, what was funny, though, about Obama making so much about this is that um, the uh, women in the White House uh-huh. earn less than men. So this time, a reporter, a couple of reporters actually brought that up. And the response, Jay Jay Carney, his press secretary, rather defensively replied that women and men in the same positions at the White House are paid the same. And further, that men and women in equivalent roles earn equivalent salaries. Right. Isn't that what we've been saying? And yet they make a big deal out of it because they know politically it plays well. So, again, dishonesty. You know, nobody needed to be told um, what were, honestly, sensible people didn't even need to know, uh, be told about what what Warren Farrell found in his research. Because I'm thinking that if I was an evil capitalist, only concerned about a bottom line, why wouldn't I just hire women so I could save myself a few bucks on labor costs? (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) That would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, I gather we're supposed to believe, though, that evil capitalist men hate women more than they love money. I don't think so. So, you know, the stupidity, though, begins with feminists who refuse to accept perfectly reasonable trade-offs. Now, the definition of a trade-off is a balance achieved between two desirable but incompatible features, a compromise. What seems to happen so often, though, when the radical feminists are in charge, is that they want the best of both worlds. They think women should have the most secure, least demanding jobs, both in terms of time and risk to physical health, but say that those jobs should pay more, without explaining why. Instead of accepting that if women want to earn more money, they should do those things Warren Farrell suggested. Um, Instead, they ask politicians to make it so that the fields they tend to enter pay more, at the expense of everybody else, of course. Uh, You know, I I also found it very interesting that in one of those, speaking of um, situations where maybe the gap is more in favor the other way, there is one area, and that's education. Mm -hmm. Women are giving men a drubbing in that one. Well, of course. I, right. go into, I go into schools all throughout this city, yeah. and you usually have pictures of the staff on the door as you come in, in, yeah. the, in the lobby. And um, as I'm standing there waiting, I, I look at the pictures, and I can't help but notice that I would say fully 90% wow. of all of the teaching staff are women. Yes. Um, I would say that almost all of the custodial staff are men. Mm. And... Uh, the That's princip- good that you men know your place. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the principles, uh, I would say, are uh, heavily weighted on the woman's side, but still uh, men have uh, a lot of uh, right. uh, roles and principles. Well, don't, but uh, Now, isn't that interesting? And then in, in terms of outcomes for the students, mm-hmm. girls are doing much better than boys. Everybody knows that. This is a very well-kept, well, it's not a secret. Um, so in this report, it noted that. So if there's a gap um, in women's favor, though, 
they don't worry about that too much. Like we were saying earlier, it kind of glossed over. Don't even mention it. But they don't seem to be concerned about how this might affect boys and men and certainly aren't suggesting that this gap needs to be fixed. Right. I mean, if they if they found a correlation between a, a woman teacher and the results of her male charges yeah. uh, being less than her female charges, mm. wouldn't that suggest, okay. using their, um, I can only say, uh, forceful yeah. left-wing tactics, yes. that um, women should not teach boys? Right, because imagine <coughs> the other way around. It, that, something An outcome like that would have demand action. We have to mm-hmm. do something about this. Meanwhile, it's just ignored. Right, completely. the other way around. If a, if a, a male teacher, yes. all of the girls in his class were, we're doing, doing poorly, poorly yeah. uh, a, a, as a matter of statistics throughout the, the yeah. country, women would be up in arms saying men can't teach girls. Right. And now, you know, one of the reasons also that this educational question is kind of important is that the report also says that educa- educational attainment is strongly correlated to better health and greater economic security. So are we suddenly not worried about boys? So that's... Um, well, you know, what disturbs me as well is that you said it earlier on, is that not only are they trying to um, increase the role of women, you know, which is fine. Yes. They do so usually hand in glove with uh, male gender vilification. Right. At the All males of- are systemically treating us poorly. Right. That is, of course, um, a rather generalization, a stereotyping that they don't, don't seem to do when it comes to... Uh, when, when it comes to what we just talked about before, um, the honor diaries and uh, wife abuse in Muslim families, they, yeah, they don't want to paint all Muslims with the same brush, yeah. which is which is good, but they're quite willing to paint all men with the same brush. Absolutely. We're at the bottom of the hour, and we're going to go into uh, some more clips. Um, these are yours. Uh, do you want to describe them, Mary Lou? Oh, I think we have... Um, Claire Shipman? Yes, and... I guess I guess what they're doing now. It's, it's a, she wrote a book called The Confidence Gap. Her, with, she co-authored this book, and what strikes me funny about this is that I, I suppose if the the truth ever gets out about the wage gap that there actually isn't one anymore, they got to have something prepared to go on to in the future. So that becomes the confidence gap. So by the way, sh- she is married to Jay Carney. Just a point of interest. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Well, a controversial new book is getting folks to take a closer look at how perfectionism holds women back, that no matter how much they've accomplished, many women still lack confidence. Through scientific research, experiments in genetic testing, and lots of interviews with women, journalists Claire Shipman and Caddy Kay have released The Confidence Code. The book argues that women pay a heavier social and even professional penalty than men when they struggle with self-doubt. Needless to say, this is creating lots of buzz. This issue of women and work does seem to be a buzzy one right now and how women can can break through the glass ceiling or get, get to a higher level, whatever it is. But I also think there's something just intrinsically fascinating to people about confidence and this notion of confidence because it's something that everybody wants, everybody values, but in fact, not everybody knows that much about it. So I think it's something that people can relate to and especially this notion of are women less confident than men? Is there a confidence gap? It's what on. prompted you personally, though, to get involved in this project? Because a lot of people would see you as being someone very confident with a successful career. Well, here's what's interesting. We have found that so many successful women aren't as confident as they seem. And I think it's true. I've had struggles with confidence in my career. I feel confident now, mm-hmm. um, but but certainly it's been a journey. And Caddy Kay, my co-author, and I, after we wrote our first book, realized 
there's this dark spot we can't quite identify where we hear incredibly successful women saying, we're not sure, I'm not sure I'm ready for that job. I'm not sure I should go for that promotion. And we started to dig into the data and we found really interesting stuff. There's a pretty profound gap. You found some interesting uh, data, as you point out, for example, that men tend to overestimate their performance and their abilities while women continually underestimate. Yeah, it's as though our barometer is just totally off. So, and, and by the way, when men overestimate, it's really what Columbia University calls honest overconfidence. We're not man bashing. It's, it's kind of great to some extent when, the, when it's not hugely overestimated. But yes, Hewlett Packard did a study that shows that women on average will put their hands up for a promotion when we feel we have 100% of the job qualifications. Men will do it at 60 why See, is that? What, what, what is, what, well, that's what that we tried from? to answer. And so we really dug into some of the science. Where, where do, is it genetic? Is it biological? Is it the way we're raised? We found a little bit of all of it. I, I was shocked to find out that confidence is partly genetic. Uh, 25 to 50%. It's in the DNA? Something we're born with. We did DNA tests. Some of the genes that, that they know now are associated with confidence, you can test for we don't really have confidence genes, as it turns out. It's I was amazing. a little dismayed. There are also some biological factors that male-female brain differences. This is always controversial, but it's true. For example, testosterone affects male brains in ways that women just don't have. Testosterone really pushes risk-taking. That's a big part of confidence building, taking risks. But we also found that the way girls are raised today is... Diff is hard for them, not in a way we would expect. It's because girls are being raised to be too perfect. They're not failing enough. They're doing so well in school and they're mastering academia, but those aren't the lessons they need for real life. Because if you don't know about failure on any level, that can really hurt you down the road. And if you're focused on being perfect and you, that, you think that's your value, people pleasing, perfection, getting it all right, of course you're not going to take a risk. Why would you take a risk? The stakes just seem too high. Boys, on the other hand, they fail all over the place and they're allowed to and that serves them well. And you can find out more about this book at confidencecode.com. It's an interesting You wanted a word about staffing? Yes, Humphrey. Morning, Bernard. Ah, Thank you. I have made a policy decision. I'm going, to do, <laughs> I'm going to do something about the number of women in the civil service. Oh, surely there aren't all that many. <laughs> I got my point, Humphrey. Uh, the minister thinks we need more, sir. Many more. More? <coughs> oh, well, we're actually quite well up to establishment on typists and cleaners and tea ladies. Uh, <laughs> Any ideas, Bernard? We are a bit short on temporary secretaries. Oh. I'm talking about permanent secretaries. <laughs> secretaries. We need some female mandarins. Sort of satsumas. <laughs> Sit down, would you, Bernard? How many permanent secretaries are there at the moment? Uh, Forty-one, I believe. And how many of those are women? Well, broadly speaking, uh, not having the exact figures to hand, I'm not exactly sure. Well, approximately. Well, approximately none. <laughs> none. And I understand there are about 150 deputy secretaries. Do you know how many of those are women? Well, it's difficult to say. Why? There's a lot of our women among the men. <laughs> Four. Are there really? 
I am going to announce a quota of 25% women deputy secretaries and permanent secretaries to be achieved within the next four years. Now, wait a minute, Minister. Why? Well, I'm obviously in total sympathy with your objectives. Obviously. Of course we must have more women at the top. Of course. And all of us are deeply concerned by this apparent imbalance. But these things take time. And I want to make a start straight away. I agree wholeheartedly. And I propose we make an immediate start by setting up an interdepartmental committee no, and no, forming no, no, the... No, 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 that's not what I meant, and you know it. I don't want the usual delaying tactics. This needs a sledgehammer. We must cut through the red tape. Oh, you can't cut tape with a sledgehammer, Minister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, Minister, you do me an injustice. I was not about to suggest delaying tactics. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's all right, Minister. I was about to suggest that if we are to have a 25% quota of women, we need a much larger intake at the recruitment stage, so that eventually there will be 25% in the top jobs. When? In, in 25, 25 years. years. No. <laughs> you haven't got quite my drift. I mean now. Oh. You mean now? Got it in one, Humphrey. <laughs> Minister, it takes time to do things now. <laughs> so there you go. And back to that confidence gap discussion. It's buzzy, Robert, don't you know? It's to buzzy, talk about it? it is. So that's, we're going to talk a little bit about this confidence gap thing. Um, I'm once again annoyed by this whole overwrought, overthought examination of what are likely perfectly acceptable, understandable, and maybe even beneficial differences between men and women. You mean there's, there's a difference between men and women? Well, I'm going to sometimes. have to ask my wife about this. <laughs> now, if you consider... That perhaps due to biological imperatives, say, women's qualities tend to make them better in the intimate sphere, i.e. among family, community, neighbors, whereas men operate more effectively due to their qualities in the wider sphere, a sort of dispassionate, more dispassionate level, the one, in fact, where policymaking is done. Um, now, mind you, you're, you're treading into dangerous territory when uh, you try to generalize as well, aren't you? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I, but at least I'm I'm being honest about it. I'm saying mm -hmm. I can see why these things might these different qualities might m lead to why there are less women doing this or that, mm -hmm. and why they don't do it as well. I think we have to be realistic. Sure. I mean, it is quite um, some. Some of these things are, are self-evident. I think so, and I'm just saying that this, like I say, this overwrought. Like, oh my goodness, what is it? It's obvious hmm. and is it and the question then becomes is it necessarily a bad thing hmm. so so for the sake of argument let's assume it's true um she talks about the ego um this explains why a strong ego is perhaps not necessary for women and in fact now now i'm talking about relations in the in the intimate sphere as in with a mother with children okay um I can tell you as a mother, there's no room for my ego when trying to resolve disputes between warring children. <laughs> mm -hmm. My ego, we don't need it. It's not about me. It's about solving the problem and seeing that in the end, the kids still love each other, even if they hate me. Th this is what women tend to do in that, in that intimate sphere where it's family, friends, people close to you. You don't make decisions like that in the broader world and, and, and when you're dealing with the public, you have to make much more um, dispassionate decisions for the good of all. And, you know, I'm reminded of how oftentimes I ask my children to deliver unwelcome news to my, my mother, their nonna. I'll say to them, you tell nonna, she won't yell at you, but she'll yell at me because that's the way these things work. You know, um, 
And women are good at that kind of stuff. Um, now, I wanted to mention like a little bit more about this uh, Robert Reich uh, thing, because it's really offensive, I think, hmm. going back to the uh, affirmative action type stuff. Christina Hoff Summers wrote an article back in 2009 called No Country for Burly Men, in which she explains at length how women's groups put tremendous pressures on legislators to make sure that this money would add jobs for nurses, social workers, teachers, and librarians in our crumbling human infrastructure. Now, many economists at the time had begun to refer that to that recession in 2007 as the man-session because of the 5.7 million jobs Americans lost between 2007 and 2009, nearly 80% had been held by men. So hmm. this... Uh, now, but, but the feminist groups put pressure on the, the legislators to devote infrastructure money to things that weren't traditionally done, like, for example, nurses, um, social workers. Daycare. Yeah. Education. Yeah, yeah. Roles dominated by women. Right, exactly. Now, you know, apart from anything else, the feminists, along with their beta male politicians who allowed themselves to be strong-armed, forget that many of those 5.7 million men who lost jo- jobs also had wives and children. Yes. So yeah. I, I don't understand where... Why they don't keep this in mind? So I have a message for beta male politicians who act as enablers for women like this, thinking that they're being progressive and doing good. My message is, feel free to say, yes, dear, all you want to your wife. Mm -hmm. But keep that out of the public policy-making sphere. Do us a favor. That's not what you're supposed to be doing, because they do actually do harm to... To, to women, the people they claim to be trying to help. You know, that's what gets me, is that while you and I see self-evidently that there is a different uh, role for men and women yeah. in society because of our upbringing um, or, or whatever, our traditional uh, roles, that kind of a thing, it's one thing to identify that and to even to uh, pass judgment on it. Yeah. It's an, quite another to bring it into the political realm exactly. and say, because of this difference, all of a sudden I want you, I want to force you to hire a woman over a man or, or conversely. Exactly. You know, bringing it into politics brings force into the equation, and that, That's to me, is entirely wrong. If you don't like the way society is, if you don't like the fact that women are bringing up their daughters to play with dolls and bringing up their se- uh, their sons to play with uh, G.I. Joes, oh, that's a bad example, to play with trucks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then that's too bad for you. Yeah. That's the choice of this family. If you don't like it, don't exactly. go running to your politician who has a gun in his hand and mm-hmm. saying, "Use, I want you to use that gun to change society to fit the way I think it should run. Exactly. And that's, I think, what I object to the most is that use of force. Exactly. Um, when I see things like this, I see this ca- capitulation that from the uh, politicians just isn't healthy. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for anybody. Okay. Um, is that it, Mary well, Lou? I don't know how it's her time. I know that you can write a book on this. <laughs> uh, I think you should call it the feminist mystique. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go to a little break here. Now, I, I, you, you haven't heard of these or you haven't watched these shows, uh, Vikings and no. Game of Thrones. But I thought I'm going to end off the show today with, um, I, I can't say it's on a lighter note because it's all about sex and violence. Oh, dear. Yeah, and these two shows personify it for sure. And our, our liking of them may tell us something about ourselves. So let's give a listen, first of all, to a clip from Vikings, followed by a clip from Game of Thrones. So tell me, how do you find England? It is a pleasant land. 
Rich with treasure. You are right. This land is rich. But here, here is a real treasure. Earth. Have you not seen? Everywhere we go, there are crops. There is food growing. I'm a farmer. I'm the son of a farmer. And this is what I understand. Compared to our poor countries where it is hard to farm, hard to live, here, it is easy. If we lived here, we could feed everybody. There would be no hunger. I like your thinking, but here is my question. Would the Saxons simply invite us to live among them? Mm -hmm. Lucan, speak to us. I can. I have been sent here by Egbert, King of Wessex. The King regrets your attack on the Holy Church at Winchester. He wonders how much longer you intend to remain in his kingdom. Well, that uh, depends. Upon what? Upon what he'll offer us to leave. Or what he'll offer us to stay. Stay? Yes. We want to make peace with the king. Peace. <laughs> so we don't have to kill any more of you. his battle land he failed his final test the lion ripped his balls off and the boar did all the rest very amusing isn't it a funny song Thank you for your rendition. I imagine it was even better received at that tavern. I'm so sorry, Your Grace. We'll never sing it again. I swear. Tell me, which do you favor? Your fingers or your tongue? Your Grace? Fingers or your tongue. If you got to keep one, which would it be? Uh, I could just cut your throat. Every man needs hands, Your Grace. Good. Tongue it is. Your Grace, please. I won't. Your Grace. Sir Illin, who better than you to carry out the sentence? I, I beg you, please. Your Grace, please. I beg you, I'll never sing again. I'm done for the day. I'll leave the rest of the matters to you, Mother. You look quite nice. 
thank you, my lord. No! Your grace, I'm king now. Walk with me. I want to show you something. That's, of course, from Game of Thrones. Yikes. Too bad you haven't seen that, Mary Lou. No. It sounds delightful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the most popular television series on at the moment. And for the life of me, I can't follow it. I'm not even sure why I bother to watch it unless it's the same motivating force which compels me to watch the fail compilation videos on YouTube. Did you ever see those? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, most people know what I'm talking about, I guess. Uh, the videos of people doing face plants on the sidewalk, oh, yeah. you know, after falling yeah. off their skateboard. <laughs> yeah. Or having uh, the swing collapse under their weight of oh. some drunk 300-pound adult trying to The things to that make people, normal people cringe, right? Yes, exactly. Oh. Yeah, there's whole videos of those on yeah. YouTube, and every now and then for amusement I go and watch them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, it's an endless series of unrelated scenes of violence and slapstick. Oh. Well, Game of Thrones is somewhat like that. The very first scene, <clears throat> let me paint you a picture here, of the very first scene of the very first episode in the series. It has... A dozen dismembered bodies arranged in some strange pattern in the snow and the corpse of a small girl impaled on a tree. So far, great opening to a series, mm. I imagine. Eh? This scene is quickly followed by the death of two fellows by some frozen zombie. This is We're only about one minute into the show, <laughs> by the way. Minutes later, we see a graphic beheading, uh, a maggoty disemboweled elk, Punctuating the violence are scenes of full nudity, a foursome on a dwarf, and a rather hot-looking blonde immersing herself in scalding hot water. The first episode ends with an incest scene, with the brother tossing a ten-year-old voyeur off a tower to what he hopes is his death. Turns out he survives. But that's Game of Thrones for you. It's estimated that there are a total of 14 deaths per episode of Game of Thrones. Perhaps that's why I watch it. The sex scenes might be another reason. <laughs> Face it, most people like a freak show. Oh, yeah. Most people gawk at a car accident. It's human nature. It might explain why this show has great ratings. Mm -hmm. But as for a plot, there's such a tangled web of plot threads that after two episodes... One is completely lost and loses all interest in who is killing whom in interesting new ways. All that keeps us spellbound is the gore and the sex. And frankly, sometimes you can just get tired of that. Game of Thrones is somewhat characteristic of a lot of what's wrong with much of the storytelling that uh, today's literati have to offer. It is a hodgepodge of disjointed, disassociated, unconnected characters and subplots. The characters have no redeeming moral qualities, as they are all basically a bunch of vile and disgusting creatures of lust and blood. Just witness that. Must uh, be written by a man. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Sorry, I but you help had a fifty-fifty chance of getting yeah, that right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who wrote that? Uh, George R. R. Martin wrote the books, but um, he only writes one episode per season. So these, there are books. Uh, yeah, written huh? uh, Bef yeah, the before the series. I tried reading the books. I couldn't get past the first chapter. Mm. They are. It's so. It's not a style of writing that I enjoy. It yeah. certainly wasn't a, uh, a well explained. Um, story. It's I mean, like kind I said, of gratuitous, I guess. It, it's I don't know. It's uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. I. I uh, but let's just move on to Vikings. Contrast Game of Thrones 
with Vikings, you know, by, by the way, Vikings is a Canadian-Irish series now in its second season, and it's based on the recounting of sagas of one Ragnar Lubrocher, and is set at the beginning of the Viking Age around the year 790. The main character um, is called Ragnar Lothbrok in uh, this series. There's violence aplenty in this historical piece, but unlike Game of Thrones, there's somewhat uh, of a moral protagonist, Mm -hmm. Ragnar, surrounded by lesser characters, but each possessed of complex motivations. Mm. Any violence is usually that of battles of conquest, although there are the odd scenes of ritualistic human sacrifice and gruesome capital punishment. Uh, Nobody can Can't avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course not. You always need throw those in every now yeah. and then. Not to the extent of Game of Thrones, so Game of Thrones just thrives on blood right. and gore and violence and mayhem and torture. Mm-hmm. But nobody can fault the acting and the professional work which has gone into the making of both these two shows. The editing is crisp, the makeup, wardrobe, sets and locations are all stunning. And this is Canadian. Um, uh, Vikings is Canadian-Irish, yeah. uh, Game of Thrones is American. Mm-hmm. But what distinguishes a truly great show from a lesser effort, I believe, is first of all, its story. And secondarily, its characters. In Game of Thrones, plot is secondary to character, which is secondary to an attempt to push the envelope of gore by coming up with new and inventive ways to tear apart oh. a human body. Mm-hmm. In Vikings, the story of uh, Ragnar Lothbrok, his family and village come first, followed by a fleshing out of the character, no pun intended, (laughs) sprinkled with a treatment of religion, morality, and philosophy. Any violence advances the plot, and the sex is brief and not so (coughs) in your face as that shown in Game of Thrones, which has full nudity and a lot of sex. Um, just to uh, recall that first clip I played, uh, that was um, Ragnar Lothbrok, the, uh, the protagonist, with um, his king. And um, he was saying, look, there's no need to fight these British. You know, I enjoy a good fight like the next guy he's basically explaining to the king. And his re- original reason for invading England was uh, to loot and plunder. Uh, to, to loot and plunder, rather. <laughs> <laughs> I just made up a new word. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, but then he says, um, look at this soil. It's rich soil. We can colonize here. We can grow our, uh, you know, grow crops, raise families, colonize, and let's sh- negotiate with the king to right. do something. That's a reasonable yeah. plot line, and that seems to be what Ragnar's all about, is doing what's best for himself and his family and his village. Mm-hmm because he's the Earl of the Village. Right. Uh, contrast that with um, King Joffrey in, in, in Game of Thrones, oh. uh, who is a capricious punk, a vile, villainous character who pleasures in torturing people. And, uh, a bit of a heard? sadist. Right? Yes, very sadistic. Um, in the first clip, of course, Ragnar Lothbrook, uh, you know, is a negotiator with the King of Essex. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by, by the way, that's uh, it's fairly true to actual history, even though the history of the Vikings was written by their victims. So they're usually uh, painted as rather uh, violent, mm-hmm. uh, unhygienic people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows what they were really like. And, of course, the king just wants to go out and loop, rape, and pillage. Ragnar exhibits a modicum of sanity in an otherwise brutal society. Now, in the second clip, we heard the capricious king Joffrey order the cutting out of a man's tongue for playing a tune he didn't like. And while this might help us identify Joffrey as a person we love to hate, it doesn't advance the story. Mm -hmm. His character has been established. He's 
uh, an we evil. We know he's yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't like him. He's he's awful. He's mean. He's evil. You know. And, and if they were unsure after they'd seen that scene of having the tongue cut out, um, right after that, the next scene is him showing his new queen the severed heads of her family, oh, her father, and her um, um, staff arranged on pikes in the courtyard. Hmm. It's just gratuitous and unnecessary. I watch it. What does that say about me? Well. <laughs> Everybody loves a gore fest. Like I said, though, I can take it or leave it. I really, every time that show's over, I turn to my wife, who's read the books, by the way, and she uh. understands it a little bit better than I do. I say, I don't get it. Who's yeah. this guy again? I've watched every single episode. Yeah. We're gone through two seasons now. Uh, three seasons. We're into the fourth. Yeah. And I'm saying, who's this fellow? What's his name again? Because there's over uh, going into the... And your wife is obviously smarter. So she must be. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't tell her that though. But I think there's over 200 yeah. named characters in that wow. uh, in that series. So it's impossible oh, yeah. to uh, to follow it. That to me makes it a much lesser um, form of entertain uh, uh, entertaining show than Vikings, which I think is done so well. More well defined um, characters. Yeah, the themes, yeah. the uh, the theme music. Just take that. Um, the theme music to uh, to Vikings uh, is done by oh what's her name I had it here ah yes Fever Ray if I had a heart great little tune put to some very chilling uh, scenes mm-hmm. uh, Game of Thrones by the way has an interesting opening credits as well but I tell you there's you cannot beat plot yes. you cannot beat storytelling Game of Thrones doesn't so it have keeps it. you coming back obviously well, of course, right? yeah unless you're a gore lover yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway I always say that. Um, gore and violence and sex should be kept in the cinema where it belongs. That way it's not out on the streets. But anyway, with that, let's clue up to today's show. So you know what to do. Next week, join us. Be right, act right, stay right, think right, and do right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Anything else, Minister? No. Oh, now, tell me, Sarah, how many women are there at the top of the civil service? None of the permanent secretaries, four out of 150 deputy secretaries. And what about your grade, under secretary? Oh, there are 27 of us. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Out of how many? 578. <laughs> Aren't you appalled? Oh, not really. I find it comic. But then I find most of the, the civil service comic. <laughs> it's run by men, after all. What can you do about it? What can I do about it? Are you serious, Minister? Yes. Oh, it's easy. Bring top women from the professions, commerce and industry straight into the top grades. The pay is quite good for women. There's long holidays, index-linked pensions. You get a lot of very high-quality applicants. And they could do the job? Of course. With all due respect, if you can make a journalist MP into an instant minister, why can't you make a senior partner from a top legal firm into a, an undersecretary? Most of the work here only needs about two O-levels anyway. 